keep Rayman Digital on the air through 2020 by pledging to our Patreon page. Uh, your continued support allows us to continue to make great content and offer even better features in the future. Help us keep the lights on in the studio by pledging one to ten dollars a month. Go to patreon.com slash Rainman Digital to pledge. Warning from the back to tank contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue. We would be honored if you would join us. Workups on your condition indicate that all damage has been reversed. Recovery is total. I believe you have been quite fortunate. No further thanks are necessary, Commander, but you are most welcome. It is my function and pleasure as a matter of royal to help and heal human I am a Jedi, like my father before me. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Star Wars from the Back to Tank. This is the Mandalorian edition, and today we are going to be breaking down and discussing Chapter 5 titled The Gunslinger. I am Michael Flores, your host, and in the studio with me, taking a dip in the back to waters in a separate tank, is David. Hello, David. How's it going, everyone? All right. So you ready to talk about this episode, Dave? Oh, yeah. I got a lot riding on this episode. A lot riding on this episode. <laughs> Are you on it like a bantha? Well, dude, dude, this is uh, this is an episode that is personally tailored by my God and and Savior Dave Filoni, <laughs> Lord and Savior. Get it right, God, Lord. God, He's God. He deserves respect. <laughs> now it's quite odd that critics are just destroying this episode, and yet I feel like we bounced back after Episode Four with a very strong episode. Oh, absolutely. I I do think that this is. Arguably one of my favorite episodes so far of Mandalorian. Some of the reviews I've been reading were using the nostalgia as a way to say it's a horribly written episode, saying that it was not horribly written, saying that the overuse of nostalgia is what destroyed this episode. And I feel like Star Wars, especially a show like this, there are times when fan service is needed or can be utilized. And in an episode like this, we're going to Tatooine. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have that. We're going to have those moments. But I don't feel like fan service or nostalgia ever took priority when Filoni was writing this. And that right there is the reason why I feel like this episode was one of the strongest episodes of the year so far, if not the strongest the episode was written and directed by Dave Filoni himself, and the writing reflects as much. Yes. I mean, what do you know, Dave? When you have a television writer write an episode of television, everything flows, flows that perfectly. much better. Yes. I mean, so far, this is probably, as I said, the best episode in terms of writing. Maybe not all the, it doesn't fill all the needs of action and violence and mayhem like episode three did, but from a writing perspective, this episode flows far better. And it's much stronger. Yes. It's, it's much more stronger. It's better tightly knit together. There's And there's a certain substance to it. It feels like this belongs actually in the realm of being written for like a episode of Rebels or Clone Wars. 
to that 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 basically it it feels like it belongs. It's a television episode. Well, we had number one, we had definitive and very concise act breaks. Mm-hmm. A problem was presented, followed by a solution, and by the time the episode had ended, there was resolve. It didn't feel like it was several acts meshed together and then sometime around, you know, running time 933, we we haphazardly went into the third act or the fourth act. Everything was definitively marked. Yes. The plot was not muddled. It was relatively simple. But that doesn't matter. We are dealing with a fairly simple show and the writing worked. It's what I've been saying since the show. No, since before the show aired, Dave, what did I say? My only voice of concern before this show premiered and when it was announced that Favaro would be showrunner, what is the first thing I said? I said, I love Favaro, big fan, but I hope he puts together a strong TV writing room. Yes, because I have had and when I say I meaning I have actually watched so many shows that could have been so great because a filmmaker gets involved, a feature filmmaker, feature film writer gets involved and they just don't understand the nuances of writing a television show. Yeah. And I mean, and that's that's why actually a really good example of this. Look at like. We all know that Filoni directed the first episode, right? And he directed this episode. Now take the two and compare them. We bashed the first episode. Well, because but we, he, he needs a little, he needs help with the directing. He needs to learn, you know? Well, but, not only that, but I mean, it really shows the difference in the writing though. Right. I mean, if, if Favaro's writing in the first episode made Dave Filoni look that bad, mm-hmm. but Filoni comes back and says, hey, I'm going to write this. This is my own writing style. I'm going to break it down to acts and I'm going to direct it myself. Yeah. That's a good observation. I can't disagree. It, it, it really does show that basically as great as John Favreau is. And I agree with you. John Favreau is a really great filmmaker, but there's a difference between filmmaking and then television making. And I think a lot of people don't understand how big. Yes. I, I feel like, cause there's been some comments Think well, you know what he is. It's not that different. No, it's it's it's, he, it's. That's why when you let's say when you go to film school, you have to choose a track, and you choose. There's an entire degree just for television writing, mm-hmm. and there's a separate track for feature film writing. They're two different animals. There is a difference, a big difference between writing television and writing a feature film. And you'd think as as a writer, you'd get that, right? But you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how many people, even who are in the business, they don't realize until they sit down and how difficult and different it is. Television and feature-length films are entirely different. Completely different rules. Yeah. A good analogy would be just because you can write a great poem doesn't mean you could churn out a fantastic manuscript. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. It's two different jobs. Mm-hmm. And they're the, not the same. They're not the same. And it. this and is Dave, just my and, and, observation that a lot of writers out there think or a lot of w- wannabe writers out there think that they can just get in front of their computer yeah. and start typing away. Yeah. That doesn't work that way. 
No, I mean, they suggest to get writing like that. Like, hey, just start typing. Don't just think about typing. it. Don't think about it. But when you go back, you need to go start, you know, making those adjustments. <laughs> exactly. And but, that's where the skill comes in. Yeah. Writing is a, a is a huge skill. Yeah. And Dave, and, and the reason why I was so passionate about this is because this is what we do. We cover, first off, you and I both know how to write feature films and we both know how to write television. Yes. Number two, this is what we do. We review, we break down, we discuss. This is literally what we do day in, day out, 30, 40 plus hours a week. And it's a known problem. In years past, it's never been an issue before because for the most part, the mediums never crossed over. Feature film writers were writers of features. Mm -hmm. Television writers wrote for TV and that's how it was. There was never any crossing of streams, but with the advent of paid programming, or premium networks like Stars, HBO, Netflix, Hulu, yeah. Amazon, and now Disney Plus, it's muddied the waters a bit. Now you see feature film directors wanting to move to places where they can tell a story, and 80% of the time they struggle to tell a tight, cohesive narrative. It feels like mm -hmm. all they're doing, and this is essentially what they do, they write an eight hour movie or a 10 hour movie and then they just cut when it gets to the running time that whatever network wants it to be let's say it's 30 minutes let's say it's 45 minutes or 57 minutes they just cut at that time and it feels off and that's why some of these shows that are that are written by feature film writers get panned by critics yeah because I mean it doesn't feel like an episode of television in order for us not to feel uncomfortable by the end. There's got to be resolve. You can't just cut the episode. And, and that's why I feel like the first four episodes for me have been so tough to watch. And yes, there are tons of cool things and the visual effects are amazing. And the Mandalorian himself is great. And the story with him and baby Yoda is it works. It does, but it's made me uncomfortable as a reviewer because it's off. There is something off with the story. And when you watch an episode like this, I was able to relax that that apprehension as I'm watching. It dissolved and went away about 10 minutes in because I'm like, OK, this is written like a television show. I can yes. now sit back and and relax knowing that we're going to get definitive act breaks. We're going to have a strong ending. And sure enough, look at the ending we got a nice there was closure to the immediate story with an open ended element that would lead into the next episode. That's, That's how, how you, you fucking write TV. Exactly. That's how a television show should be. And instead of, you know, like, hey, let's just cut it right. In, uh, right. When he finds the child. OK. And yeah, I mean, and, that was a good hook, but but it was a but terrible pace. But in, right. It was all right, because. We did. It took us forever to get there. And then when we got there and when I say it, it took us forever to get there. Mind you, this was a what a 30 minute episode, the uh -huh. first episode. But that's because of the pacing. Mm -hmm. You're like, wow, we did all of this to get to here. And now it's over. So luckily, moving forward, as you had brought up on our last show, Dave, it looks like from here on out, we have other writers on board. Yes. And that's a good thing. Like I said in our last episode during our discussion, what did I say? I said that you got to have writers in that writing room. They call each other out. They work together as one cohesive unit and they work through problems. 
that arise when you're writing an ongoing story. It's very different than a, a singular focused feature film. Yeah. And I, I honestly feel like going again, comparing what we've seen so far before this, this latest episode, mm -hmm. we got that whole first four episodes felt like one gigantic. I remember me, you even mentioning it. It felt like a gigantic movie. Like everything's supposed to blend together. Right. So we watch every single episode yeah. because they all need the, the episodes need each other mm -hmm. to actually make sense. This one stands on its own. And just like what you said, you have this nicely confined story. And then all of a sudden you have the hook for the next episode. Yeah. The difference between film and TV film. We have to write one complete cohesive story. And I honestly think you're right. I think Favreau just basically looked at it and said, okay, I'm going to cut it at the end of my act one, mm -hmm. cut it at the end of my act two, cut it at the end of my act three. And those were my three episodes. Yeah. And it's like, you'd think, and, and sure, this is the simplest thing to think logically, hey, that might make sense for TV, but it doesn't because you don't hook anything. There's a, there's a way that, we as audiences over the last, I don't know, however long TV has been around, there's a way we've been groomed to watch TV. Yes. Yes. This act structure isn't the same as, say, other countries. For the most part, you have the United Kingdom. They work the same way we do. But there's some foreign markets that don't follow all the same rules. For the most part, American television, we all write the same for the most part. And if you want to appeal to American audiences, you also write the same way no matter where you're at. Mm -hmm. There's a set of rules that we are used to. And you cannot reinvent the wheel 40 plus years later because no. it feels off. And the reason why things were designed this way was purposely done to create a way subconsciously to immerse the audience. These yes. things weren't just made up. They were devised in such a way that would grab the attention of the audience and would do a lot of work on the back end subconsciously. I'm like, okay, even if you don't know exactly what's going on, the writer does. He knows exactly what he's doing and when he's doing it in order to maintain the attention of the audience. And these are things that television writers know how to do. It's been beaten into them. Mm -hmm. Feature film, very different, but let's move on. We've kind of talked about beating into, we've kind of, <laughs> we've kind of beat this dead horse, but let's move into the visual facts, Dave this week. And I don't, I don't want to say this week as, as if we have not received amazing visual effects, but the visual effects this week, I really liked the yes. way the episode opened up with the other bounty hunter chasing down the Mandalorian and we got to see a bit of a dog fight, which, fuck, dude, the visual effects are so fucking amazing. It's so crisp. It's so clear. There's no optics being used to hide the effects, which is what we see a lot in CGI. Uh -huh. You use a lot of optical lighting at times. You use some blur effects. You use some zooms and some crazy pans sometimes in order to help 
with the visual effects. This is so clear, like they don't give a shit. I mean, yeah. in a good way. Favreau and Filoni are so effing confident with their visual effects team. They're not trying to hide shit. They want you to see everything. Yeah. I mean, the physicality of the of the the razor. What's the name of the ship? Razor Claw. The Razor Claw. It's so in your face and there. It's real. As we know, probably 60, 70% of those shots is a miniature. Yeah. Obviously, they're helping out the shot with CGI, but for the most part, we're looking at things that are there. And what a way to kick off the episode. <laughs> and this is what I have been preaching for so long, Dave, about visual effects. Visual effects nowadays, it's usually people making movies and then utilizing visual effects that are already there technologies and ways of doing things that some other person had come up with. Someone else has had innovated of, uh, I guess you can say it, but something with star Wars, star Wars has always paved the path. It's always paved the road for the bigger scope of cinema. Yes. This is something most star Wars fans understand. And this is something that almost every film historian also acknowledges that star Wars and George Lucas has just, they have kicked open that door in terms of technology. Well, apparently on the set of The Mandalorian, they're doing the exact same thing. And that just made me fall in love with this show a little bit more this past episode because John Favreau in a recent interview talks about them utilizing new technology. They're blazing trails, David, in this show. Yeah. That is Star Wars. That's one of my biggest problems with the new sequels. It looks beautiful. They're great. And setting aside story for a moment, what are you doing new? Yes. Are you blazing paths? Are you experimenting as a filmmaker to really push those boundaries? No, you're no, not. You're not. You're just taking the technology that's there present and putting it to its optimum level without testing it. Right. Without pushing it and saying, hey, let's try something different with it. I mean, look at Filoni and Favaro, what they talked about at Star Wars Celebration with the razor hook. Wait, razor, razor claw, razor crest, razor claw. <laughs> what is it, David? Razor claw. What, the razor claw. When, you know, Favaro put together this team, this Cracker Jack team of miniature makers miniature model makers put together the ship and then shot it and said this is what we need to do they were playing around essentially in a garage and they came up with the spacecraft for the show that's filmmaking dave yes that's what it's fucking all about now apparently they're using technology that was used a bit in the lion king uh john favreau's last feature film, but now they're using the same technology in a very different setting. Favreau says in the, in the Lion King, there was no physical shots. There was no live action shots. So it was very different taking this technology and translating it over to live action. And they're using basically a, a, a VR system. Uh, in the Lion King, he says, we built a tool set, basically a multiplayer VR filmmaking game. Using the Unity game engine, they said they built a bunch of tools working with lead VFX house, MPC, and tech developer Magna Opus, and shots within VR. In The Mandalorian, 
He says they used a lot of the same tools to plan the entire production, working uh, with the Unreal Engine from Epic Games, which I'm sure you're familiar with all of these terms. Yes. Uh, But The Lion King was much different, he says, uh, during production because there was no actual photography. For Mandalorian, we take that cut, he says, and instead of going right to animation... And render like we did on the Lion King, we build sets and a digital environment that we project onto a video wall. Yeah. I mean, this is awesome stuff. All that this is why this show is so expensive. Remember, we were talking about it the other day. I mean, they're doing God's work, David. (laughs) God's work from the visual effects side. Visual effects side, yes. And And, and I think this is important, Dave, and I think this is why this feels authentic. Yes, I have my problems with the writing and with the story. I do. But I've never once said this doesn't feel like Star Wars. And this is why so many people are loving this show, because there's a a feeling of authenticity to this show. And that and that's what it comes down to is authenticity. I mean, like, I'm sure a lot of fans out there think it's easy when people throw throw the term around practical effects. Yeah, a lot of people nowadays throw that term around a lot, very heavily, but they don't understand the execution of using those pack practical effects, and then establish uh, using it with establish CGI or visual effects. You're meshing different technologies together. And that's what you need to be doing. That's yeah, what they're experimenting. They're experimenting. They're, I mean, they're actually taking the technologies and toying around with it. That's another thing that Robert Rodriguez has done since the start of his career. James Cameron. They mess around with things. And then when they realize they need a fix because whatever is actually already out there and made is not going to work for what they need. So what they do is either a... They reverse engineer the the technology they're currently using and then rebuild it to work for what they need it to do or they just make it up there on the spot. Yes. And this is what this show is doing. Mm-hmm. And that that's the reason why films like Avatar make people so emotional because you look at what Cameron – like a filmmaker, what Cameron has done by taking the technology and pushing it beyond its its set boundaries and then you get that's why you get quote unquote masterpieces like avatar and why you look at the new set of star wars films and you go just like what you said looks pretty looks fantastic it looks like anything else that we've already done yeah same thing same goes for the puppet as well the um the Baby Yoda puppet. It's amazing what they've done with that. I mean, I'm, as much as I'm getting burnt out on Baby Yoda. I'm only getting burnt out on Baby Yoda because of the fucking memes. Yeah. On if, social media. I, I, I swear to fucking Christ. If <laughs> if I see another one, I'm going to unfriend the person on, on Facebook. As much as I, I'm with you, I'm getting a little fed up with Baby Yoda. But when you look at what they've done with that puppet, my God. You just imagine the origins of this Empire Strikes Back, what the Henson house, uh, Jim Henson's house right, yeah. was able to do. And then they, they essentially today you look at what they've done with Baby Yoda. They take the same technology that they did with Jim Henson. And what do they do? They push it to 
beyond its boundaries. Right. And when they can't get what they want, then only then, then will they compare it, uh, pair it with CGI. CGI. In fact, in this interview, Favreau talks about that specifically. He says the puppet is mostly is mostly physical. It's yes. it's mostly puppet. He says that's what he said. When it's CG, we try to make them obey the same physical laws. That's a very important word to remember when you're doing any type of visual effects. Physical laws. That, physical laws. That would govern this puppet. He says, I think a lot of times CG makes itself too obvious where you don't create parameters creatively that allow the character to keep the same identity and charm. And this is why the baby Yoda looks so great because there's attention to detail. It's a puppet. And that's one thing I really noticed. And you can, this is them. There are scenes where essentially Filoni and Favaro are blowing themselves. Okay. There's various moments where they'll touch things. Well, they'll have an actor touch something that normally they wouldn't do, uh-huh. but they're doing it because there's a realness to it. For example, when the, docking bay worker the mechanic the mechanic was holding baby yoda and she was talking about his big ears what does she do she's playing with the overly plays with the ears and they flop around and you can see the weight the weight of the movement as the mechanic and baby yoda interact yeah whereas with cgi you do lose a lot of that the biggest problem with cgi is the perception of weight things don't move or drop as well as if it was real yeah just go and watch your next cgi feature and you'll see the difference no matter how great and beautiful the cgi is how does it look when you compare it to some life person exactly and that's something that you could definitely pick out on and i i I challenge the writer the viewers dave next time they're watching the mandalorian and there's something that's obviously really there, a physical object, you will see them touch it and rub it and show us that it's there. And that is Filoni and Favreau blowing themselves. Like, guys, it's really here, guys. Yeah. It's really here. Shit, we're going to touch it. And not only not only that, it there's just something about having something there so because it allows the actors to bring out their performances more. Yeah. Like, I compare... I liked to be fair though these actors need something a lot bigger to help with their performances but because, but in this uh, episode <laughs> in this episode it worked i mean so the, the, i don't know the, I, I do i do agree with you that is 100 true it's what, it's what really of, what really helped the dock worker i i wrote her name down the eh, actress but yeah the actress uh, that was doing the uh the mechanic what really helped it was the fact that she had stuff there that she was holding exactly and it it, it for me, watching her acting with something that's real and substance helped the weakness in her performance. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And the same thing with the with the uh, other the other the the male actor who mm-hmm. I really liked, but like the the fact that he was able to hold on to the speeder, the the or yeah. Did you notice how props. they how they he rubbed his hand across it and yeah. tapped it because, tapped again, it. they're showing us it's real. It's right and there. I'm not saying that's really what they're doing. Filoni and Favreau aren't thinking, hey, we're going to show them that this is real. Subconsciously, they're like, go ahead and touch it. 
Yeah. Because it's really there. You don't get to do that with CGI. It's not there. Yeah. Or, or the fact that when he was sitting on it, the way he sits on it, it's very unique yeah. and it sticks out and it helped him, helped him with his performance, helped him actually establish his type of character. His character's very rough around the edges. He's kind of scruffy. He's, 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 uh, he's egotistical. And he's Karelian. He's Karelian. But it, 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 fit, it fits also. It helped with his character motivation. That being able to act with something that's physical right there. Yeah, I I I dig it. I felt like the VFX was just so fucking great in this episode. Um, but outside the technical stuff, we were given some fan service moments quite a bit. <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, the Mandalorian is forced to land on Tatooine and we see, of course, most Eisley yep. Cantina. It was so cool to see, too. Um, after all these years, Dave, we're back inside that cantina. But do you, do you notice the thing I really appreciated about it was it wasn't for me, it wasn't just fan service. It was being able to see most Eisley changed after Return of the Jedi. Right. After the after the war of the uh, there's no stormtroopers there's around no stormtroopers. There, uh, there's no crime. Did you know? Did you actually see that well, we they were, went, walked into was, the cantina? It was a little bit of a narrow perspective on everything. It was very isolated for, I'm sure, budgetary reasons. But yeah, it was different. It felt more clean. It felt more clean. You know yeah. why? And I, I, it, it hit me when I was watching it. Why, Dave? Because Jabba's dead, and there's no underworld anymore. Wouldn't things fall Eisley. apart though? Wouldn't there be a vacuum, a power vacuum of sorts? You'd think, but I mean, there's yeah, we, also a scenario where basically I, things might have gotten better. Oh, come on. Most Eisley is Mos never going to get better. Most Eisley was the vent den of scum and villainy, but why? There was a bounty hunter, a, an assassin. As long as we have scum like Tuscan Raiders running around. That's fine. So stupid. But it but it, it looked, it made sense to my brain as a Star Wars fan because I'm like, eh. well, wait a minute. Yeah, Jabba's dead at this point. All the underworld, it's been cleaned out. The rebels see, cleaned I, them out. I, did they though? Like I feel like the the underworld would be stronger than ever because usually when there's an exchange of power, uh, the underworld grows. That's why this time period was chosen for the show. Remember because they said business was booming, and also people that didn't care about the rules of the bounty guild could could actually go there. But the thing is. Who's the one that's actually protecting all of them? Jabba. Because everyone knew Tatooine was Jabba's territory. Well, Jabba was killed, so there's no one protecting the underworld anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I think you're overthinking it too. It, 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 for me, it basically made sense because it'd be too simple to say, oh, most likely fell into corruption. Corruption from who? No one else was established as like a, a person vying to actually try to take over for Java <laughs> because no one's crazy enough. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, we got a lot of fan service and I was OK with that. Typically, you know, when I use the word fan service, it usually comes with some negative connotations. But in this instance, in this episode, I feel like fan service was actually pretty fucking good. It would yeah. make sense, especially if we're going to Tatooine. There's going to be things that we expect. This is the kind of fan service that works. There were Dubaks, Banthas, Tusken Raiders, uh, an R5-D4, a gonk droid, pod racing, pit droids, a docking bay. 
that was awesome to see again. The Dune Sea, the Dune Sea, uh, Womp Rat references. There's also a moment where Baby Yoda apparently was channeling Obi Wan's crate dragon sounds. That was weird. And okay, now Dave, that happened when he first woke up and he started walking down the ramp of the ship. Yes, and the mechanics saw him. But before that, he made a sound, a roaring sound from the ship. Now, we're not quite sure why he would do that. It's very unclear. But I got to think that it's way more than just simply fan service. Hey, guys, we're on Tatooine. You remember in New Hope and Obi-Wan scared the Tusken Raiders with a crate dragon sound? There's got to be more there than that. Why would you choose you. that specific sound to use for baby Yoda. This is this is adding to my tinfoil hat. Tinfoil hat. He's really a Kray dragon, right? <laughs> no. Baby no, Yoda's that. actually a Kray dragon. He transforms. But it's it, it's to show that the Yoda baby Yoda is very unstable. You know what I mean? Why would he actually how would he know what a crate dragon sounds like? Yeah, that's a question I had too. And like especially a uh, something it, it, Overall, he sounded monstrous. We also don't know his experience. He's been around for 50 years. So who knows where he has been during this 50-year time span. And, like, just like what I alluded to in the last episode, we kind of get that sense that something special, something's off about Baby Yoda. I, I don't know, Dave, but go ahead and explain what you mean by that. Okay. In the fa- last episode, we uh, we heard my tinfoil hat explanation about the Lothcat, right? The yeah. Lothcat hissed at Baby Yoda. I think you should start writing for some of these blogs. <laughs> uh, honestly, this this is getting there. But Dave, you're turning to a Reddit post lately. Am I? You kind of are. But go ahead. I am curious. And that's why I get annoyed mostly. It's because I'm like, yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. But I but, know it's not it. But here's the thing. So I brought up the fact that the Lothcat reacted to Baby Yoda negatively. All Star Wars fans know Lothcats are very sensitive to the Force. They react in certain ways. If someone's being good, if someone is of the light, they like them. Right. If someone is being of the dark, they tend to hiss at them or scratch them or attack them. Yes, yes. Then you get to this instance. You hear the baby Yoda, you hear the monstrous sound. Initially, when I first heard that, you know what it reminded me of? What? Ezra. When mm-hmm. Ezra had the 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 moment with the Sith beast, right? Remember, in yes, his mind, in, he in summons Star Wars the Sith Rebels beast. Season one, season one, yeah. And we hear the roar, and it freaks Ezra out, right? Why? Because he tapped into the dark. He side. He tapped into the dark side and summoned the, the un- beast unknowingly, right? Because so we have this. Well, happen. listen, I see what you're saying, and it's very possible. Again, you're dealing with – first off, let's just state what I think is the obvious at this point. This isn't another species of Yoda. I think no. it's pretty fucking clear that we're dealing with a clone. I think the, so, the too. The time would make sense being 50 years as we had said, I believe in the second or third episode, but also remember doctor, the doctor, the Imperial doctor from episode one. Yes. Okay. He was the accomplice of the client who saved the baby's life. Apparently who was trying to extract something from this child. The The only thing he could be extracting is midichlorians. Yes. Okay. So the only thing that makes sense, we already know that the baby has the force. 
But that doctor had a patch on his uniform, which resembled the exact same patch that the clones wore in episode two at the cloning facility on Camino. On Camino. Yep. So right there tells you for the observant eye tells you that this is a clone unless they're trying to distract unless they're trying to um, distract us distract us. But that would be really fucking bad. It'd be very bad. But see now. now OK, well, hold you on. You have I'm, a tin. No, 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 because this is based on facts, David. This is based <laughs> on things we saw. But yes. I'm going to back you up on your thought that it could be that we could be dealing with an unstable force here force here because first off if this is a clone okay of yoda we're talking about a clone of the most powerful jedi in known history in canon in official star wars canon right now since disney took over okay he rivaled palpatine but he was the light you're dealing with essentially cloning a super weapon now, who's training this child? What type of training has he had before this? If we can say perhaps this could be some forgotten experiment uh, during the Empire's reign that Palpatine had started, as we know, uh, as we know, Palpatine had his hands in various different scenarios and strategies for this and strategies for that so it's not too hard it's not too much of a leap to take but that being said 50 years of this little force sensitive nuclear bomb running around (laughs) with no formal training yes he could in fact represent a threat Mm -hmm. if he is not being trained and being told how to control his emotions or deal with things yeah, you're dealing with a with a with a nuke, with a mini nuke. Yeah, essentially, it's you're dealing with a wild animal who doesn't have the training to be placed in your house. Yes, and I <laughs> right, and I that would be logical if they were to go down that route. But we're already in episode five, and we have what? How many episodes left? Three. We have three episodes left. We have three episodes left. Do we really have time to explore something that rich in mythos? I'm beginning to think, dude, that because they announced the 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 news that second season has been cleared and right. they're working on it, I think this is going to be like an ongoing storyline. Right. But we also got to introduce something, Dave. Like, would they really go down this route when they're having problems cracking open this story? Because... Dave, we're, even though I enjoyed this episode, there are still the issues of story. What's the story? This week, we didn't learn much about the Mando, the baby, or the client. Yes. Now, as I said, the episode was a huge improvement over the last four in the way of writing. But we need to start cracking open the story because yeah. we really don't know anything still. Since What have we learned since episode one? No, I take that back. Episode two. Episode two. I would say episode two because episode the midichlorians being extracted, if that's in fact what it was, Mm -hmm. the force that the Yoda child had. What have we learned? Not much. That's the thing. Actually, I take that back. Episode three with the midichlorians. But what have we learned outside the fact that the Empire is after him is after the baby? We, We don't know anything else. 
we we got to start moving the story forward. We have three episodes left. So I am a little nervous about that. And I think for them to start exploring the, you know, the intricacies of light and dark with baby Yoda, I don't think they have time for, especially since we're dealing with 30 minute episodes. That's why I think that honestly, I think that aspect won't be tackled till season two. Yeah, I can see that because season one, I'm beginning to think that the, the, the whole storyline of season one is the Mandalorian running away from the bounty hunters guild. That's our main story. Arc. But that's not really a story though. That's just a concept. Oh no, you're right. It is just a concept. I mean, but, it's a, I'm not saying you're wrong that that's a concept, but, but where's the story? That's a plot point. You know, that's not really a full story. However, I do have high hopes for the second season, Dave, because this season is not terrible. No, it's uh, not. the second season though, is going to be a season. I'm hoping filled with writers and directors that understand exactly what they're doing a more seasoned group of individuals that have the chemistry and the know-how to work together and flesh out this story. Yeah, so, I am hoping for that. So, well, we still have three episodes left. So, I mean, something major can happen soon. Oh, you mean like the lead yeah, up that, that cliffhanger isn't right. good enough. <laughs> right. So we had Ming Hua Wen. I think that's how, you, that's how you say your name, yes. right? The, Actress that made her debut this week as a pretty fucking cool assassin. A sniper. That was yeah. freaking cool. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot more of her. First off, I dig her. I think she's pretty fucking great as an actor. Uh, she has a good, a great look to her. But what's her story? That's what I really want to know. What's her story? I don't know. And how, what's like, her connection? Because I was a little disappointed when she got shot in the gut. And I'm like, <laughs> exactly. wait a second. There's no way they're going to kill her. There's no way you're going to bring Ming Wan Win, who's a fairly big name, especially within the geek circles. Yes. You're going to bring her into this show and then kill her after 10 minutes of screen time. It ain't fucking going to happen. You're going to have fucking riots. <laughs> so when they went back to her before the, the credits... I was like, okay. I was like, all right, she's not going to be done yet. And then we saw those boots enter the screen, Dave. And I was a little giddy because from a Western fan standpoint, uh, there was no reason to have spur sounds because he wasn't wearing spurs. (laughs) He wasn't wearing spurs. That's the most awesome thing. Which it could easily be armor, you know. Jingling. Yeah. Which is probably what it was. But nonetheless, it still does the trick. Yeah. It sounds like Spurs walking. You had that classic Western shot where the boots enter the frame. But the question is, Dave. Who is it? It's Boba Fett, Mike. Well, yes. The internet is going crazy. And exactly. I think I think it's like what we say a lot when we're talking about Star Wars theories. Simpletons. It's, it's deductive <laughs> reasoning gone awry it because... Is. Of simpletons. <laughs> well, last we saw Boba Fett, he was on Tatooine inside the Sarlacc's belly. Five years later, well, it does take a thousand years to digest, if you remember. And uh, voila, Boba Fett has a jetpack <laughs> and he escaped. And then they use, well, uh, there's a story saying he survived. I'm like, yes, thank you. We all know that. <laughs> Please quit sharing the. Uh, I hate when a Star Wars fan tries to school me. Yeah. Well, there is a story in the 90s where Boba Fett comes back. Thank you, motherfucker. <laughs> if I didn't know that, I shouldn't be doing this show. Exactly. I know that you're not. Ju- you're not. You're not 
dropping any knowledge on me. Yeah. And plus, there's no connection to it. Why? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. In a show that's 30 minutes long, yet again, we don't have enough time to then explain to the audience, hey, by the way, Boba Fett's alive, Uh, remember? Only takes a thousand years to digest, so he could be, you know, sitting there for a few years, and whom, he escapes, and he's out. (laughs) I don't know the people that come, I don't know how people draw these conclusions. However, there is a lot online, all suggesting that it's Boba Fett. I think people just want it to be Boba Fett. And because then, it's the simplest idea. And unfortunately, I'm sorry, Boba Fett fans are just children. Oh, David, <laughs> I'm a Boba Fett fan. Simmer down. <laughs> just, just, I'm kind of a child. I like poop jokes and I like boob jokes. And I'm sorry. <laughs> so stupid. All right, Dave, but you have a theory. Yes. That I am more inclined to agree with and it would Knowing who wrote this episode, yep. knowing who directed this episode, yep. also understanding the character's purpose and who he's modeled after, yep. the genre this character is modeled after, I actually agree with you. So without further ado, Dave, what is your theory? Well, my theory is that Dave Filoni has been working on finishing stories for characters he created. He created. So the one character that I'm like theorizing that was in the end is a character from Clone Wars. He's been throughout the entire seasons. He's ne- we ne- we don't know his fate. Is Cad Bane? Yeah, the bount the yeah. the the greatest bounty hunter well, of them all, and he is the most obvious. When I say obvious, this is okay. Yeah, Western character in Star Wars now. I, mean, I know he has a fucking cowboy hat on. I know what fans are going to be saying with Cad Bane. Well, at Star Wars Celebration, they showed the unfinished episode that never got released. And I want to preface that. It never got released. So it's not canon. You can't say unfinished animation is canon. Yeah. But uh, Cad Bane was supposed to meet his end facing Boba Fett. Now, Filoni was never able to release that, so it's not considered canon. Right. Cad Bane, by canon standards, is still alive and and in the universe. Yeah. And this guy is just modeled after spaghetti Western characters. Not Not just the regular standard Westerns. I'm talking the... My favorite genre. Cad Bane is a character literally ripped from spaghetti Western films. Yeah. Do you know, and Filoni has came out and said this, he based Cad Bane on Angel Eyes, Lee Van Cleef's Angel yeah. Eyes. Yeah. From uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm like, going, we're dealing with a, a series called The Mandalorian that is supposed to be a Western in Star Wars. And there's this one character that's been iconic for the for for all Clone War fans. He's a and, cool character too. And Star War fan, Star War fans everywhere. And he is an alien, thing. so he could live a long time. Because we're talking about what 30, 30 years, thirty years, roughly. And, then, and you're, since Clone Wars, yeah. And you're dealing with a story that's centered around the Bounty Guild, who Cad Bane. Right. Exactly. Ran. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like going, when I first heard the Spurs, 
it was like so funny. My my, I literally start jumped out of my seat, jumped out of my seat, and screamed at the TV. It's Ken Payne. Oh <laughs> and then your your girlfriend left you. Yes. <laughs> all, oh because my god. My, my girlfriend just looked at me and says. You are such a nerd. She's all, why? What are, what's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> and like, meanwhile, everyone on the internet is talking, it's Baba Fett. It has to be Baba Fett. You're on Tatooine. He, cr- he crawled out of the Sarlacc pit. It's Baba Fett. I swear to God, it's Baba Fett. It makes sense. It doesn't make sense to me. It, it doesn't make sense. Baba Fett is the uh, last we see here without Tatooine. <laughs> but then you throw on the fact that basically, just like what you said, who is this? Who is this story written by? Dude, you should hear the half-ass theory why they think it's Boba Fett. They're using the cape and the boots, <laughs> and I'm just thinking. You realize, like, there are literally tons of characters in Star Wars that have capes. Yes, and almost every character has boots. <laughs> it, that would never hold up in court. In fact, you would be <laughs> laughed at. <laughs> That would never, ever hold up in court. Yeah. And like, it, just like what you said, I think the problem with, that I have with Boba Fett. Boba Fett. Is the fact that people cannot accept the fact that the way he died. He's fucking dead. And I'm like, like no, <laughs> he's dead. He's being, he got devoured by the Sarlacc bit. I understand you don't like the fact that basically Han Solo, you know, jabbed his Jetpack and he went flying and crashed into Boba Fett. Into Boba Fett. <laughs> where? Where? Boom. And I know that you. I know Boba Fett fans are are horrified that that's the how their hero dies. Sorry, that was just George Lucas actually making fun of you. <laughs> George Lucas never intended for this character to be like. Exactly. In fact, I remember there's an interview where he laughed. He laughed. He laughed when he was talking about Boba Fett's death. And he said, yeah, I guess apparently people brought him back in like the comic books or something. And he starts chuckling like it was a stupid idea. And listen, I'm not bashing that. I love Boba Fett. He's a cool character at the time. But honestly, Django Fett's the fucking cool character. He's the one who kicks ass. Yeah, Django Django kicks ass. I mean, if you think about it, Django's all the clones that we all love are based off of Django. Yeah. Hey, well, what if we see a clone? See, that would be kind of cool, too. What if we don't get Boba Fett, but we get a clone? That would be interesting. Actually, because hold on a second. Let me think about this. We what? know that some of the clones are still alive because Rex was at the Battle of Endor. Uh, I'm not saying in this episode, but I think we could. And, al- uh, uh, and also, I mean, it wouldn't be hard to bring Boba Fett in, honestly, it would take a lot of explaining to do without, no, without it. You, no, you, don't, no, hold, don't try no, to no, save no, 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 hold on, hold on. <laughs> it would take a lot of explaining to do in a 30 minute episode. That's not uh, on a TV show. That's not about him. It'd be silly and it'd be a waste of time. Yes. When there's so many other stories that we need to, or there's so many other things that we need to start pushing forward. However, it would make sense for us to see him someday soon, either in the Mandalorian or some other time period around this time because the actor that played the clones i mean he's pretty much aged on par with how old he would be now oh that's a good point you know what i mean yeah. like it would kind of work it in a lot of worked. ways you can you'd have to age him a little bit i mean it's been what how many years uh 12 years no no about 15 years since yeah, attack of the clones like roughly the attack of the clones not in um 
canon time, but in our time. In our time, in real time, yeah. I mean, the actor would be really good. He's almost 20 years older than he was in Attack of the Clones, so, I mean, we could make his appearance work. Yeah, and I mean, he was, he's still acting. I mean, he's still, he was the uh, father in Aquaman, if I'm not correct. Yeah, and he looks the same. And he looks the same. So you could age him just a little bit. Yeah, Attack of the Clones came out in 2002, so we're looking at, uh, what, 17 years ago, roughly? Yeah, about 17 years. I think more 15. I think you were right on 15. It's 2020, Dave. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're right. So 18 years in a few weeks. (laughs) I'm old. (laughs) All right, so final thoughts, Dave. Final thoughts on this episode. I really like this episode, and I think a lot of people are going to be surprised with my grade for this episode. Oh, Jesus. I'm not going to have you throw something at me. That's not the, that's not that type of episode yet, <laughs> but comparatively to all the other episodes, I mean, I've been giving the Mandalorian seventies and eighties, but this one, honestly, just, <laughs> I have my blaster ready. Go just ahead. based on the fact that if it, it's better paced, I thought the directing was very well done. The acting was not as bad as like some of the past episodes and the visual effects, just like what we alluded to, helped actually some of the weak acting. I'm going to give this a 90. It's probably the highest uh, highest grade I've given for The Mandalorian. Because the episode is strong enough to stand on its own, but it still left you wanting to see the next episode for what's coming up next. No, I agree. And I agree with that they gave us less baby Yoda and they made baby Yoda more impactful this episode than the last episode where he was all over the goddamn place. And me and you were like saying like enough of what baby Yoda here, the Filoni kind of like tailored it back and basically said, okay, he's still part of the main storyline, but I'm going to use him instead of try to exploit him. Don't exploit him. Use him properly. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I honestly feel like this is probably, I'm going to say it, my favorite episode of all Mandalorian right now. I mean, even more than episode three. I know that I fanned out on episode three, but ah! the thing was episode three is like a shiny new toy. You know, I love playing all the toy action figures, all the Mandalorians and everything. Everything was perfect. The fight scenes. The but this action. is the way, David. This is the way. But yeah, this is how... All episodes of Mandalorian should feel. This is the way. <laughs> this is the way. <laughs> uh, if, I, if I hear one more person say that to me, I'm going to freaking blow my brains out. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> How can fans make you hate things? Like, I, I would have no can't problem. Have nice things, No, dude. because now it's quoted everywhere. Every, this is the way. It was for a couple weeks. It was, I have spoken. I'm like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> Can you enjoy a show without being a fucking nerd? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> I hate to say it. I was the one who can't. I was the one who basically was going around saying, "No, were you?" Yes, not to me because you know what? Punch you. <laughs> See, I like how you act differently in front of other people because you know me. You know, yeah, like exactly. Michael's gonna like. Michael's gonna like punch me. Yeah, man, let's not push that button. <laughs> All right, so 
I enjoyed this episode. I will not rate it nearly as high as you did. However, I mean, it's not that it doesn't deserve a high rating because even with some of the issues that I do have with the show, as well as this episode, number one being the, the actors, I mean, good God, can they fire the casting director? (laughs) (laughs) I think they have to. Why are they at least Ming Na Wen was good. Ming Na Wen was good. And of course the Mandalorian is good, Mm -hmm. but but all these side players, they're just not that good. The Carillion bounty hunter was okay. Yeah, he was okay. He was okay. He got, he was a little rough at the beginning, but then by the end of the episode, when he quit putting on that fake bravado that just felt fake and unreal, he became more interesting. Mm -hmm. But that mechanic. I don't know what it is. I'm like, there's a difference between being silly and being not good. So the acting still continues to just baffle me. The writing was a huge improvement. The directing was good. Mm -hmm. I think Filoni proved that he can direct an episode of television live action. I should say. Yes. I do like the little cliffhanger moment at the end. It was a good way to draw us in and kind of set up expectations for the following episode. We haven't really had that since the first episode when the Mandalorian stumbled upon baby Yoda Baby Yoda, and we need things like that. At the end of episodes is how you write television. You got to give us those little hooks at the end of each episode. So huge improvement. I, I do like how the Beskar is all powerful again, but couldn't resist an impact from a woman <laughs> an episode ago. Well, but you, now it can block, you know, blaster fire, blaster fire from a, from a augmented sniper rifle. Yeah. But look out those, uh, those hits from the shock trooper. <laughs> they knock you out. Going to take you down. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I enjoyed this episode. I'm hoping we get more episodes like this one. The visual effects blows me away. And I applaud the powers that be that that are doing this. As I said, it, it brings a level of authenticity to the show. I'm going to give this episode an 81%. Which is good. Yeah. All right. So I want to thank everyone for listening. Please leave us reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash Star Wars from the back to tank. Star Wars from the back to tank. And thank you, David. Thank you. May the force be with us. Ah, yes.